have been for a while, and uh, hopefully we're moving through all of that and get into some chapter two here in a year or two, but uh, we're where we're at today. You remember last week we talked about uh, a section of verses, verses 19 through 28, uh, and I always like to kind of build a bridge between the week before to this one because it kind of all goes together to keep the continuity flowing, and, uh, and we looked at probably two, without a, without a doubt, two great fundamental questions in the Bible that every child of God uh, within the church age is faced with. And we based it on chapter 1, verse 19, when they asked John, uh, who art thou? And then I took you back to, uh, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, and I showed you where God asked Adam, where art thou? And, uh, you know, without a doubt, those two questions leave no wiggle room uh, for anything in our lives. It really doesn't. And uh, what, uh, you know, it's what I like about the Bible. Uh, The Bible, pure Bible, uh, clear Bible, never leaves any wiggle room for any of us. Now, a lot of people don't like that, but I think that's the best way for it to be. And there's no way around, you know, last week's message that will flush us all out and expose uh, who we really are. And, uh, you know, and I told you last week, it's not our big mouth and what we say of who we are or actually who we think we are uh, that defines us, but what we do, how we handle issues in life biblically, going back to the Bible and following the protocol that is laid out within the Scriptures. Bible tells us, and this is familiar to many of you in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, that by manifestation of truth, that we through that truth will commend ourselves to every man's conscience. What does that mean? It means simply that we use the Bible. We use the Bible. That means that we, we deal uh, with issues with people openly and honestly, not behind their back, not, you know, not in some closed room someplace, but uh, face-to-face uh, dealing with the issues and finding a solution to them. And I get it. Sometimes there is no solution, but at least you get to deal it, lay it on the table and deal with it, and we, you know, we can know for sure you know, uh, what the truth is and how that we're dealing with it. And, uh, you know, that we know that in this Christian world today, it's a pretense. Uh, It's all pretend and much in denial. And in most cases, you know, going to the Bible and sitting down and finding out what the issue is and how the best way to deal with it never happens. You know, almost, almost a hundred, half, half a century now, uh, when I got right with God, uh, you know, over a half a century, I've watched God's people and I've dealt with God's people and I've watched them in every scenario, every circumstance for almost a half a century. And I got to tell you, you know, I've never seen today a more cowardly group of people than God's people when it comes to just dealing with the truth and commending ourselves to every man's conscience through the truth of the word of God. And in every case in each of our lives, we, we must face and deal with these two questions. We can't escape it. There's no way around it. We may pretend it's not, but it hits us square in the face. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. 
but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him which whom we have to do. And, uh, you know, everything that we do is open to his eyes and, uh, and open to his, his eyes, everything he sees. And those two questions will manifest in our lives who we really are. And at some point in life, you know, you have to deal with it. Now, this is why you will never, most God's people today, they will never sit down with an open Bible to, as I said, to fix any issues or at least find out what the real truth is so you, you know where you're at with it. Last week, we saw the book of James chapter 1, the looking glass verse, how that the, not to be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word and how that, you know, we look into a, the word of God like a looking glass and it shows us. And Paul told Titus in chapter 1, verses 19 through 13, exactly how to deal with situations like this and people like this. He said, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been, as he hath been taught, that he may be able to, by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said of the Cretans, uh, are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Holding each other accountable with the word of God. That is the number one asset that we have with each other. Lovingly, kindly, but at the same time, it's the only way that a church and God's people can be function is through the accountability of the word of God. Not just hearing the word, but doers of the word, getting, you know, it all put together. Like Luke chapter 6, verse 46 says, Jesus himself said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? And boy, there's God's people today. Well, that was last week, and we move on to our verses today. Let's look at uh, another set of verses. And today we're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. And it says this, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And, and this, is, this is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I come baptizing with water. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessings upon today. Put us under the blood. Forgive us where we have failed thee and give us the ability to look down into the word of God today and to see how, how all this pulls together. Uh, Lord, the Bible is an amazing book, and it doesn't matter if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament or 4,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago and today. The Bible's still relevant, and it all works toward a goal. And we thank you for that. And that because of that, we know it's a unique book. It's a book that defies the logic of this world. So help us today to see and understand this and help these people grow to be everything that God wants them to be. In Jesus' name, for his sake, we ask it. Amen. Now, today, you're going to get a good example of what we talked about last week, laying out the doctrinal application of things. 
you know, at the same time, you're going to get a good look at what I mean when I talk about getting, when it comes to the Word of God, the fullness of God, and getting the depth of the Word of God. And we will break down uh, these verses. We're probably only going to break down the first one today, and then we'll, uh, there's so much here, and then we'll, we'll finish it out here in a week or two as we move on through it. But we're going to break down these verses over the next couple of weeks. And there's a couple of different aspects here that I want to talk about. And the first aspect of Christ I want to talk about is when John says in verse 29, and I quote, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now let's talk about Jesus Christ as that Lamb of God. Now, you know, that's a favorite verse for people who major their whole lives on soul winning and nothing else in the Bible. You know, they'll like to quote that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, and truly he was. And, uh, you know, that's a great verse that uh, if you're preaching and you're preaching on salvation or you're laying something out for people to get saved, obviously that's a good place to start. But there is so much more to that title that goes way beyond the shallowness of most of God's people who just use it as a catchphrase to get people saved. Now, when it comes to the sacrifice in the Old Testament, God, God regarded the shedding of blood, or he required the shedding of an innocent blood for the temporary covering of a man's sin in the Old Testament. We know that in the Old Testament that uh, people couldn't go to heaven. God created a place called Abraham's bosom, and we know from places like Luke chapter 16 and places in the book of Psalms, where in the Old Testament, when a man or a woman found God's righteousness, that that's where they went. And the reason why they could not go to heaven as you and I were going to heaven is because Christ obviously had not come and died. He had not shed his blood. So in the Old Testament, God requires sacrifices. He requires offerings. In fact, there's six of them that they are, Israel is required to bring. Now, when you lay them out and study them, which we won't get into today, you'll find that the first three are voluntary. There's no actual requirement for you to do them. You do those first three based on your love for God and the fact that you, you know, it's a great thing. It's, it's almost a picture of what we have today, that there's things that God doesn't require us to do, but some of God's people will go over and above to do them because they love the Lord. That's a lot what that, those first three are like. Not everybody was required to do them. They're voluntary. The second three were mandatory, and everybody had to do that. And we also know that the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 4, and 9, 22, that uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But it also tells us that the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It could only temporarily cover it till Christ came as the sacrifice that was the true sacrifice, that the Old Testament blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away our sin. It only temporarily covered it, and that's why they couldn't go to heaven and they had to go to Abraham's bosom. Once Christ dies on the cross, sheds his blood, jumping ahead here for a second, then you know that he goes down into Abraham's bosom and he preaches to them, and then he leads them out, and then they all, they all go to heaven. Now, 
uh, back in the Old Testament, God called uh, these different sacrifices for different things. Some of them were called trespass offerings. Some of them were called sin offerings. The trespass offerings seemed to look like that the offerings that somebody gave when they did something against their fellow man. The sin offerings obviously are the ones that you would do because of your sins against God. And each one of them, when you lay them out, will picture Christ's sacrifice in a different way. They're kind of like a, a, a composite of his overall death. God also made it possible for any man on any income level to make a sacrifice. That's why you'll find that people of low income could do a turtle dove, that's a bird, and all the way up the scale to somebody that had a lot could do a bull or a ram. And, uh, but you're going to find that the main example... Back in the Old Testament, in all of it, will be a, will be a lamb or, or a sheep because there is nothing more, nothing more uh, defenseless than an innocent or innocent than a lamb. Sheep too, but a lamb in particular. And everybody thinks about, uh, you know, a, a little cute little lamb. I mean, how many times, maybe it doesn't happen anymore, back in the 50s and the 60s, mom would look at a little girl, a little guy, and call it a little lamb. And, you know, it was a little thing. Because they're so cute and they're so innocent. And who could think of hurting, well, anybody today. But back in the day, who could think of hurting something like that? But, of course, uh, uh, that's why it was picked. Something innocent, something that had no uh, nothing wrong with it, to uh, something that was innocent. The picture is dying, and that is how it works with a lamb. The lambs and sheep picture two things. The lamb will always picture Christ. Sheep will always picture us, in particular the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but us uh, in, in, in the New Testament. And you're going to see that as, uh, as we come through. And uh, the Bible lays it out, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, that a pastor is a shepherd. Uh, that, you know, I'm not fighting that, and that's fine. Uh, you know, he shepherds the flock, I get that. But from a Bible standpoint, getting down where it is, the only shepherd mentioned in the Bible is First Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and that's Christ. And he is the chief shepherd. And, of course, uh, everything is a picture of him taking care of us as sheep. You have God's people, and here's a little picture you find in the Gospels. You have a lot of God's people today that, that are worried about losing their salvation. And uh, they struggle with the aspect that, uh, you know, that they can actually lose it. In Luke chapter 15, and it's, really they're all through the Bible in an inspirational picture, but in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, you have a little story that in a spiritual sense illustrates, uh, you know, our own salvation. And it's the parable of the 99 sheep. You know the story. Bible says the guy has 100 sheep and he loses one. And he goes and looks for that lost sheep. And he finds it. And the Bible says that when he finds that sheep, he, he lays it over his shoulders. Now, the way he did that, and I've actually seen paintings and pictures, and I always thought it was pretty cool. The, he lays the sheep down, or the lamb down, and he takes his two front paws, or hands in this one, feet, legs, and he puts his back legs in this one, and then he, he, he takes that sheep up and puts it over his shoulder. And he walks back to the flock. Now, most people wouldn't see this. Most people wouldn't even think of this. 
I saw that years and years ago, and I thought to myself, now that's an incredible picture of my eternal security. Because I'm over his shoulders, I, and I know, I know, I know, I know, we're part of his body. I get all that, but this is just such a cute story. Shut up and just listen to them. <laughs> he takes that sheep or that little lamb, and he puts it over his shoulders like that, and he's got his back feet here and his front feet here. Now, the, sh- the little lamb can't fall off because if he falls this way, he's got his front paws. If he falls that way, he's got the only way that little lamb can fall is if the shepherd falls. Now, see, that's a picture of our eternal security. Uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. And, you know, sheep are incredible animals themselves. Uh, years and years ago, I, I, I preached out at a church in Montana. In fact, we preached several times. Mel and I were out there together preaching it. But I, I was out there one time by myself. And, uh, you know, Montana is just, you got to be there to believe it. It's just, it's endless space. And we think of a farm, you know, or a ranch around here, you know, as 50, 60, 100, 200 acres. Some of these ranches back there that were, it took them, it took them two days riding a horse to get to the upper part of it. I mean, it was, they were so big. I mean, millions of acres. And they would have sheep on one, cattle on another. It was incredible. And they had whole, you know, they had bunkhouses with 20, 30 cowboys that worked, and that's what they did. That was their job. Well, right there at the farmhouse was the sheep. And I actually rode on the wagon as they were going around and dumping out food for the, for the sheep. And I, I got firsthand to watch uh, uh, real sheep dogs at work. And they are the most amazing animals you ever saw in your life. And as I was driving on that, watching it, I, you know, I was just, I was, couldn't get, it was incredible. And I, I come up with the understanding that Jesus Christ is the shepherd, but we think that pastors are shepherds, and they're really not from a Bible standpoint. There's only one shepherd, pastors are sheepdogs. Because if you'd watch these sheepdogs work, protecting the sheep, it was unbelievable. As long as the sheep were in a little herd together, you know, the dog would just lay down about, you know, 40 feet from them and he'd just watch them. If a couple of the sheep would get moving out this way, then he'd move around this way and, and get them back in. And it's a thing where if the sheep, you know, got way out of line, then he'd start barking at them. And then he'd run around and round them back in. If they wouldn't listen, he'd start nipping at their heels to try to get them back into the flock. It was incredible. And uh, it's a thing where uh, I, I, I watched that and I thought to myself, boy, that is a perfect example of what a, a pastor has to do to keep the sheep together. Sometimes, you know, they has to bark at them. Sometimes they have to nip the heels a little bit. Uh, and sometimes you have to run around and make sure that they stay within the flock of the other sheep. But I watched that dog. He just worked. And you know what? The guy told me. He, he, I, I talked to him and he told me, he says, you know what? That dog came out of a litter of another dog and nobody taught that dog a thing. He had it inbred in him just how to do what he does with those sheep. It was incredible. I asked him, I said, I said, tell me about sheep. And he said, you know what? He says, sheep are the dumbest animals on a planet. Now, I already know that sheep are likened to Christians. I didn't tell him that, but I wanted to hear what he said. I didn't want to put any thought. I said, tell me about sheep. Me already knowing. He says, sheep are the dumbest animals you ever met. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, nothing. I said, he says, you know, he says, sheep get lost. 
We lose them. You know how they get lost? Because they get curious and they leave the flock and they go check things out that they shouldn't be checking out. And if the sheepdog doesn't catch it, that's, that's, that's how we lose them. I thought to myself, that's an amazing. That's the same way I lose them out of my church. He said, you know what? They're totally dependent because they're so dumb and stupid. They're totally dependent on the sheepdog to keep them from getting into trouble. And I, he said, you know what? He says, sometimes they get sick. And he says, you can always tell a, sheep's, a, a sick sheep because they do two things. And I said, oh, I got to hear this. What are the two things that sick sheep do that lets you know that they're sick? He says, the first thing they do is they quit eating. And I thought, well, that's instructive. The second thing he said they do is they start separating themselves from the other sheep. They leave the flock. Sick sheep leave the flock, quit eating. I thought to myself, wow, what an incredible parallel. You know, back in the Old Testament, dealing with Christ's death as the lamb, for me as the sheep, uh, to become one of his flock, you know, look at Isaiah chapter 53. Here's where you see it really clearly laid out. I'm going to read the first 10 verses here. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was, chast, uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, this is obviously talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Now, watch. Look at the next verse, verse 6. Here's you and me. We like sheep, all, all we like sheep, there we are, have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, verse 7, here's Christ. He was, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb. There it is. You see, the sheep is us, but he's the lamb. To the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have an IQ. It means that he doesn't speak. He doesn't say anything, which he didn't. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and shall declare his gen and who shall declare his generation for he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken and he made his grave with the wicked and and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence neither was there any deceit in his mouth yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he hath put him on uh, put him to grief and which shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper uh, in his, his hand. Now that's Christ portrayed as a lamb. An innocent, dumb, no speaking, didn't offer any defense, brought to a slaughter, which will be the crucifixion. So when John sees him, understanding the Old Testament passages, John sees him coming and he knows from Isaiah 53 and many other places in the Bible 
who he represents, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, when we want to preach salvation, when we want to talk about salvation or how things lay out for you and for me, as far as Christ and getting saved, that's how the world should view him, our Lamb of God. Now, last week, I just gave you a brief little expert uh, excerpt of Exodus chapter 12. And I told you how that the first time I really heard a doctrinal message, you know, Dr. Ruckman preached the gospel according to Exodus. And uh, many of you asked me to lay out uh, completely uh, this chapter. And I was kind of waiting for this passage right here because this goes right along with where we're at. And last week, I kind of set you up for it, just kind of whet your appetite. But today I'm going to walk you through and I'm going to show you doctrinally how that you look at something in the Old Testament and make the parallel to what Christ had done on the cross in the New Testament and take that term, behold the Lamb of God, and put it back into a biblical context that you can get some depth out of it and really learn some things about your Bible. Now, let me start with this, the gospel. We know that the gospel uh, is defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, for the church age. Different gospels in the Bible, but the one that you and I are associated with directly would be the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached uh, unto you unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all which I received that how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and it was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now that's the gospel. That's the gospel that is given to us through Paul that we preach as the gospel of the grace of God for the church age. And this is the definitive passage on it in your Bible if you don't have that mark. Now, there's three things about the gospel or three aspects to it that you want to see. First of all, the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. So there's a biblical process of understanding how he died for our sins according to the scriptures, not according to your priest, not according to your church, not according to some man, according to the scriptures. If the man that you're talking to uh, doesn't go along with the scriptures, then uh, uh, there's no truth. I remember I went to Bill's sister's funeral here a couple last week or so, and uh, it was at a Catholic church. And every Catholic church will have stations of the cross. There's, I think, 12 of them, 14 of them, something like that. And every one of them is a different thumbnail capsule of Christ's crucifixion. It has him before, one picture, he's before Pilate, and then he's being beaten, and then he picks up the cross. And you, you walk through it. They're numbered. They're, I think there's 14 of them. And you look at this one, and then you walk around, and you look at this one, and then you walk over, and you read this one. And it kind of is a, 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 a picture of Christ's death on the cross. And, you know, in the Bible, it tells you that Jesus, you know, he stumbled and he fell. And that's when they put uh, 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 the guy with him, Simon the Serenian, to help him carry the cross. And that is up there in one of the stations. And then it has on where Jesus falls the second time. And then it has where Jesus falls the third time. 
Now, the second and the third time are not in the Bible. Catholic Church puts them in there. I guess they needed to have more room to take up on the walls. I'm not sure. My old buddy, Alex Dunlap, who died many years ago of cancer, he was a he was a uh, he had a ministry to to Roman Catholic priests and nuns. He had the greatest burden on the planet for Catholics that I have ever seen in my life. And he would come into town, and he would go to the Catholic Church, and he would talk to the priest. And I was just young then, and he was preaching at the church there in Canton. And he took a group of people, young guys, and with Mel, and we were going to go to the Catholic Church. And I just went because I wanted to see how he operated. Because his goal was to give a priest an opportunity to trust Christ and leave the Catholic Church. And he had, a, he had a safe house for them that when they did, that they went and they discipled him and worked with him. And so we go in there, <laughs> and Alex, and he, he was an incredible guy. He really was. And he, he's talking to the, we're talking to the priest and all along of the, all along of the station of the cross. And Alex says, uh, what are these? And the priest says, oh, those are, are they stations of the cross? And he says, oh, really? And he says, yes. And he said, um, he said, uh, what do they, he says, they picture the different phases of Christ's crucifixion. And Alex said, well, that's amazing. And he says, how about this one here where Jesus falls the second time? And then Jesus falls the third time. Uh, are they in the Bible? And the priest said, uh, absolutely, they're in the Bible. And, and Alex said, where at? And he says, well, I'm not remember for sure, but they're in there. And Alex said, well, could you look it up? We have time. I'd like to know. Well, the guy couldn't find it. And Alex said, where is the one that has him stopping at Gino's hot dog stand? And the priest said, what? He says, where is in the crucifixion that, that, uh, that, that did, he, did, he, did, he, did he stand, go to the Gino's hot dog stand? And the priest says, well, I think you're being irreverent. And the priest had told him when Alex pushed the issue that they, they were not in the Bible. And so he says, well, just because they're not in the Bible doesn't mean that they couldn't happen. So that's when Alex asked him about the Geno's hot dog stand. And when the guy said, you're irreverent, and he says, why? He says, just because it doesn't say it in the Bible doesn't mean they didn't stop there and eat. And, of course, the priest didn't know what to do with all of that. And the bottom line is, it says, according to the scriptures, the Bible is the only book we follow when it comes to Christ's death on the cross. Everything else is just man-made uh, stuff that they put in there to try to foster some kind of idea that isn't true. And he said that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then the fact that it was the second aspect that he was buried. And then the third aspect that he rose again the third day, again, according to the scriptures. Because if Jesus didn't die, it's obvious he would be buried. But if Jesus didn't die and he didn't rise out of that tomb, then your salvation's in vain. So it has to be according to the scripture. Now that's the gospel. Notice, just throw this in from a couple of weeks ago. It said according to the scriptures, not according to the originals. Because the originals were not scripture. And all through the Bible, doctrinally, you will find pictures of that gospel uh, in the Old Testament scriptures. Every book in the Bible, well, in some way, shape, or form, in some place, you'll have the gospel according to Genesis. 
You'll have the gospel according to Isaiah. You'll have the gospel according to Daniel. You'll have the gospel according to 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, you know, uh, Joshua. There'll be stories in those books that will picture the very gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I believe, even though we're in the Old Testament under a law. That's doctrine. Being able to see those, being able to understand those, being able to connect the dots and lay those out is where you really get a depth to the Bible. And, uh, you know, the picture of Christ as the Lamb of God is much more than just your, your little cliche that you use when you're trying to win somebody to Christ. Our sacrifice, yes, but there's much more to it in the Bible that lays that out. Now, in the book of Exodus, and I want to talk to you for a few moments about the gospel according to Exodus. So turn to Exodus chapter 12. And this is a picture of what John was declaring in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 31. John understood this. John understood the Old Testament to a degree because he told us that Christ was the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He just did not make that up. He is running back to the Old Testament in places like Exodus chapter 12. So let's read it. And then allow me to show you what is real depth when it comes to the Bible. 12.1, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the lands of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, every man according to his eating. Shall you make your count for the lamb? Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from out of the sheep and from the goats. And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. uh, And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts on the upper door post of the house wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head, his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth it until the morning shall be burnt with fire." And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girt, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, I am the Lord." Uh, and the blood shall be to you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague uh, shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. This is the day, this, and this day shall be unto you a memorial, and you shall keep it for a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, ye shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, you want to get to the place in your Bible when you can read something like that, and the Old Testament is filled with them. I mean, every book of the Bible, it ought to just jump out at you. 
When you spend time learning the keys to opening up your Bible and getting to the place in your Bible where these things are right there and just like, uh, you know, falling out on the ground where you can pick them up. And I want to I break down for you, if you'll allow me to, the idea, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world from the gospel according to Exodus. And I want you to see the parallels. I hope that this will do for you what it did for me, oh, 50 years ago. That I never got over and it lighted a fire in my heart to learn the Bible to get it down. Now, let's look at this. There's a number of things here I want to look at. Number one, let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This, shall, this month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but up to Exodus chapter 12, when the Jews had their new year, where it started the new year, it was at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in September uh, back then. And uh, it was around September 20th through the 24th. That was the, that was the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was based on God creating everything back in Genesis 1, and the Feast of Tabernacles was where they began their year. And all the way up to Exodus chapter 12, the nation of Israel observed the beginning of their year from, Exodus, from, uh, from the Feast of Tabernacles uh, uh, September. Now it all changes. Now the beginning of their year is going to become a new month. Now it's going to be our April and it's going to be now based on the Passover where before it was based on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now there's a new beginning of the year and it's based on this right here, the Passover. And that is a picture of the Bible laying out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. It's a picture of the new beginning of your life the day you trust the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. It's just that simple. And this Lamb will be a picture of Christ dying for us and shedding his blood. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for you and me is our Passover. He's our Passover lamb. And it goes right back to Exodus chapter 12. It's just like when God started this out and he says, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, a type of the world. And when I bring you out of the world, I'm going to give you a new beginning. The day you left this world by trusting the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, you got a new beginning and now you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. See how that works? Incredible. Look at the second thing. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5, and I, I, I gave you this last week because I remember when he laid it out. I just, this is like what got me right here. He says in verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month shall they take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers a lamb for a house. 
And if the lamb, uh, if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto him house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count uh, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year uh, shall take it from the sheep and from the goats. And I remember the night that he laid this out and I gave it to you last week. Three aspects that you got to have about the lamb. Verse 3 says, a lamb, see, because the first thing that we need is something innocent to die for us, and we need a lamb. Verse 4, it says, the lamb. You need a lamb, but not just any lamb will do. The lamb of the Buddhists won't work. The lamb of the Jehovah Witnesses won't cut it. The lamb of the Mormons won't get you there. The lamb of the Charismatics won't help you at all. You need the lamb. But then verse 5, it says your lamb. See, you can know all about the lamb. You can even have the right lamb. You can see it and understand it. But you take the lamb, till you take the lamb and make it your lamb, you ain't going anywhere. Now you look at that. I remember Dr. Ruckman saying, stop from drawing it out. He looked around and he said, now what kind of mind do you think was behind a book like that that said, a lamb? Next says, the lamb? Next step, your lamb. Then he laughed and he said, you got the right book and went back to preaching and that's an incredible thing you got there. Making Christ's sacrifice personal to you. Then the third thing in verse 5 here, you want to look at this. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of the sheep or from the goat. Now there's three things here you want to see. First of all, it says your lamb shall be without blemish. It couldn't just be any lamb. It had to be an ant lamb that didn't have any spot on it, didn't have any blemishes because it's representing Christ, our lamb of God, and he is perfect in every aspect of his life. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, uh, eight, uh, 18 and 19, it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions of your father, here it comes, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. There it is. That lamb represents the lamb of God that was coming down to die on the cross that John was going to see. And so he says, you got to have a lamb, but it's got to be a, it's got to be, it's got to be perfect. Then the second thing he says in there, it has to be a male. No female lamb that had to be a male. Because Christ was a male. He was the son of God. He showed up as the son of man. God, perfect man. Then the third thing here, which I think is quite incredible, is the fact that he says, your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. In other words, it had to be the first ones born in that year. It couldn't be a second. It had to be within that first year. And that's an interesting thing because if you study the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was our lamb of God, you know that he was a man of firsts. He did things that nobody else ever did accomplish before. And whenever he did something, nobody else ever did it. So it says here that it, it has to be the, it has to be, you know, it has to be the, out of the first year. I mean, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus is called the first begotten of the dead. He's the first one. When he died on the t- cross, the Bible says that he was put in a tomb 
that never a man had ever laid in before. He was the first guy in that tomb. When he rode into Jerusalem over there in uh, what? Mark chapter uh, 11 through 12. I think it's chapter 11. Uh, he, he, the Bible says clearly that he rode upon an ass that never a man had rode. He was the first one to ride that animal. Now, when he came into the world, he came in through a virgin that had never known a man or had a child. So she, when she gave birth, he was the one that was the first one born of that woman. Everything Jesus did, he was the first one to do it. Now, we got a lot of guys running around today saying that you ought to worship Mary. You ought to worship Mary. No, 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 no. I don't worship Mary. Jesus Christ was a man of first. Just as I wouldn't worship the ass he rode in on, I wouldn't worship the woman. You see, he, he had to be taken out of the first of the flock. Because Jesus was first in everything he did. And I always thought it was interesting. <laughs> a little preaching here. Jesus was always the first in everything that he did. He was the first of that tomb. He was the first from Mary. He was the first on the ass that rode in. He was the first by God of the dead. Jesus is first in everything except most of God's people's lives. Fourth thing, verse 6. And he shall keep it under the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now there's three things here. The Bible says that they kill this lamb on the 14th day of the month. You go back in Mark chapter 15 and uh, look at the crucifixion. And it, 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 Mark chapter 11 through chapter 15 is the, is the greatest uh, uh, chapters in the Bible that shows you the crucifixion day by day, almost hour by hour. The last week, called the Passion Week. And you'll find that uh, when Jesus Christ uh, is crucified, back there in, uh, in uh, Mark chapter 15, uh, you'll find that uh, he's crucified on the 14th day of the month, just like the lamb back in Exodus. Fourteenth day of the month was Wednesday. The Catholic Church teaches you that he was crucified on Friday, so they have Good Friday. It wasn't Good Friday, it was Bad Wednesday. He's killed on Wednesday the fourteenth. The last week of his life, from his triumphal entry into the Jews in Jerusalem to the crucifixion, is almost laid out, almost like I said, every hour. The chronological chronological order of events is right there, Sunday to Sunday. Now, the second thing I want you to see is it says that the whole congregation of Israel kills it in the evening. And so you're going to find in Acts chapter 2, when Peter, in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, Peter is uh, preaching a series of messages that Stephen winds up finishing out the revival. And uh, he's preaching to them about what they did to Christ. And he says to them in Acts chapter, uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, nation of Israel, both Lord and Christ. So back there in Exodus, you know what it says? It says the whole congregation of Israel kills it because they did. They killed it back there and they killed it, the Lamb of God, when he showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's not all, in the evening. And Christ dies on the cross 
on the 14th day at 6 o'clock in the evening. (laughs) You're not going to beat that Bible. This gives a whole new dimension to the Lamb of God, you know, that everybody wants to talk about. Well, there is so much to that. God's people never get to that depth. Killed it in the evening. Mark 15, 42, he dies at 6 p.m. in the evening and he's taken down off the cross. Behold, the Lamb of God. The fifth thing, verse 7. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Now this has to do with the blood. Now here's how it went. They got a lamb that was a male of the firstlings of the flock without blemish and they killed it. And they took that blood and they put it into a bucket and then they got a hyssop branch. And they took that blood and uh, just so you get an illustration of what it is, the door, that front door of the house was like that where people went in. They got that bucket of blood and they put blood here. They put blood here. And they put blood here, two side posts and on the top. Now, why not just put a big X on the door? Why not just put a big circle on the door? I'll tell you why. Because whoever wrote that saw Calvary. Whoever wrote that saw one thief over here and one thief over here and Christ here. Now he's numbered with the transgressors. But he's deity and he's higher than they are. Whoever did that saw Calvary. Whoever did that saw one thief over here, one thief over here, and Christ numbered with the transgressors, but Isaiah 53, verse 12, but he's higher than they are, he's deity. Now, I, 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 I want you to see this. It says, and they shall take of the blood and shall strike it on the two side posts of the upper door of the houses wherein you shall eat it. Now the spiritual application is simply this. Is everybody in your home under the blood? I mean, we saw this in Proverbs chapter 31, didn't we? The making of garments for the family. And yet Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says the garments of salvation that God made for Adam that the fig leaves weren't any good. He had to kill something innocent to cover their sins. Is your home, is your family, is your house, everybody in it under the blood? Paul makes the same point in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, if you don't have any rule over your family, you have no business being in the ministry. So when you come back here, even though it's an Old Testament story, it's following every New Testament principle that you're going to find. That's amazing. Sixth thing, verses 8, 9, and 10. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall ye eat it. Eat it not raw, nor starred at all with water, but roast with fire, his head, with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. Pertinence is all the other parts. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. Now there's a couple of things here. First time I want you to see verse 8, it says, in that night. 
picture of the church age. Verse 8 says, roast with fire. Verse 9 says, no water. That'll go back under the law of Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 7. Now, you want to find Christ dying on the cross and him roasting on the cross? It'll be Job chapter 30, verses 8 through 31. And you'll actually see it in great graphic detail. He's roasting on that cross. It says, no water. So in John chapter 19, verse 28, he says, I thirst. Now, verse 8, 9, and 10 will be a reference to the 6th to the ninth hour when he's on that cross, when God turns his back on him, the sun refuses to shine, and the devil literally on the cross brings hell to him. And you'll find in Job chapter 30 where he's roasted, roasted alive. You'll find in John chapter 19 that the roasting is so bad that his bones are burnt black with heat, that his bowels are boiling and he cries out, I thirst. A little different from your little pooty duty gospel thing you always put out, isn't it? Now you're in depth of the Bible. Now you're down where it's really get into the doctrinal things of the Bible. Most of God's people can never get to this point. This is where God turns his back on his son and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Verse 9 says, you're roast with fire, his head, his legs, and the pertinence thereof. And nothing, verse 10, to be left till morning. Why? Because God's sacrifice was a total, complete sacrifice and every part of that lamb has to be burnt, consumed by fire, because Christ's death on the cross was a total, complete sacrifice for you and for me. Behold the lamb. Now, the seventh thing, verse 11. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, after you eat this lamb, or when you're getting ready to eat this lamb, you need to be ready to move out and do something for the Lord. And you'll notice that there's three things here. I mean, this thing was written 4,000 years ago, and yet it's all relative right down the line to the patterns of, of a progression of how you grow spiritually today when you get saved. Notice the first thing he says, loins girded. Now, that'll be Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, where it talks about having your loins girt about with truth in the armor of God. And then it says you need to get God's truth down first, and then you, 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 you take it, uh, you, it's a, and your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand. See, God wants you to move out and do something for him, but you got to get the truth of God's word first. We don't need any more people running around out there who don't really understand a lot about the Bible and just want to put out the little bit that they know. That'll get you in trouble. If you don't have a debt to yourself in the Bible, then just hold up till you get it. Now, you know, don't take, that's what it says. It says, have your shoes on your feet. Ephesians 6.15 says, feet shod, feet shod, feet shod. Feet shod. What's the word? With the what? Preparation. Preparation. You need to be prepared before you put the shoes on. 
This thing will kill you. This thing was written 4,000, what, 4,500 years ago? And it all lines up with Ephesians. We don't need any more God's people running around with just the gospel. We need God's people running around with the Bible. Depth. Fullness of God. Being able to lay out that book. And how do you get there? Study to show thyself approved. You kids in Bible Institute, next Saturday morning, you know what you're getting. You guys are coming along. That it's, it's so evident in your life that you're getting that kind of stuff, that you're seeing it. Both of God's people on Saturday morning are sitting on their couch, not on their fudge sickle, watching Bugs Bunny. There's more to it than that. And he says, then this shall you eat it with your loins girded. You got to get the book down first before you put on the shoes. And your feet, shoes on your feet. Get ready to move out. God wants you to go someplace. God wants you to do something. But he doesn't want to send you out there to your prepared preparation. Loins girded about with truth is number one. Then it says, having your loins girt about with truth, and, and then it says, shoes on your feet. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, it says, feet shod with the preparation, the preparation, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then the third thing it says, staff in your hand. That's the shepherd's rod. You know, there's two of those in the Bible. Most of God's people don't even know where they're at. There's two staffs, two rods in the Bible. One of them represents the law of the Old Testament, Moses, that's the one he carried. The other one is called Aaron's rod. That's the priestly rod. That represents you and me in the New Testament church. And it says your staff in your hand. That tells me before you ever go out there to have your feet shod with the gospel of preparation, the preparation is understand what God was doing with Israel and what he's doing with the church. Understand those two rods. Aaron's rod budded. <laughs> Moses' rod was the rod of judgment. Aaron's rod was the priestly rod. Oh, two different rods in the Bible. The eighth thing, verses 3 and 4, going back up to this. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth month of this month shall they take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers. A lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall you take your count for the lamb. Now, here's what you do when you get the blood on the door. Here's what you do when you get the, when you get the blood on the, uh, of the lamb on the door. Once you get saved and once you move out, you know the next thing you do? You share the lamb. You share the lamb. But there's two things here. I don't want you to miss this. This is going to be tough. Two things here. Number one, the first thing about that lamb is it had to be shared with your own household. It had to be shared with your household first because you have to make sure your house is under the blood. And then and only then do you share with your neighbor. 
You make sure your household gets the lamb, and then after that, you make sure your neighbor gets the lamb. Share the lamb with your neighbor. Now, how do you explain that? 4,500 years ago, 4,000 years ago, I mean, come on. I mean, how in the world do you explain that? I mean, how in the world do you explain that? I mean, it's just, it, it just, it's, it's, that's the Bible. That's what makes the Bible the most supernatural book this world has ever seen. The gospel according to that. Behold, the Lamb of God. The ninth thing, verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The ninth thing is, when you get the lamb yourself, your house gets it, you take it to your neighbor, you know what you tell them when you share the lamb? There's a coming judgment of God. God will execute his judgment. Verse 13 says, and when I see the blood, when I see, I'll pass over you. Notice it didn't say, when I see your baptism. Notice it didn't say, when I see your good works, when I see your church membership. It says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No simpler verse in the Bible that tells us that, that Nothing can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yeah, people have such a tough time with that. Right there it is. Where do you go? I mean, hey, this year was Thanksgiving. Had about as half as many fly different places from KCI. But there was almost 200,000 people that flew out of KCI. And if you were going to fly out this week, you're going to go up there and you're going you're gonna, to... You're going to go there and you're going to do all your work and get everything. And you're going to go there to the gate and they're going to call the gate. And when you go through there, you're going to show them that little thing and they're going to check your ticket. And uh, what do you think about a guy to be up there and he'd be standing in line, go through all that stuff and be out there and he'd be moving up the line. And she says, and the lady says, hi, can I? He says, I need to get get on this airplane here. She says, well, that's good. I need to see your ticket. He said, well, I, you, I don't have a ticket, but I want to get on this airplane. I want to go wherever this plane's going. She said, well, you have to have a ticket. And he said, well, wait a minute. You let so-and-so on that plane. There are all these people on that plane. Uh, he says, but they all had tickets. You said, well, I need to get on this plane. She said, did you have a ticket? No, I don't have a ticket. No ticket, no plane. Now, you understand that? Okay. No blood, no heaven. Not complicated. He said, when I see the blood, open up your hymnal. I think it's 232. When I see the blood, I will pass. I will pass. I will pass over you. No ticket, no plane ride. No blood, no heaven. Now look at the the 10th thing, verse 14. And this day shall be unto you a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now he tells you that this Passover, this picture of you and me getting saved by the lamb, our Passover lamb Christ, now he tells us the last thing here that it's going to be, it needs to be a memorial. 
from generation to generation, you need to pass that down for you and for me. That's the Lord's Supper. Paul, while writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 34, he talks about that Christ is to have a memorial, a day of remembrance. As often as you do in remembrance of me, he says, verse 24. A time when we stop and reflect on our Passover lamb. And just as the Jews from year to year to year <coughs> kept that feast and brought their children up understanding that. Churches today have the Lord's Supper, communion. A time where we stop and reflect of our Passover lamb and teach our children how important that, that is, the death of God's Son, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, and again in verse 25, as often as you do in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, you see, in chapter 12 of Exodus, every aspect of the gospel that you and I got saved by is laid out in a type, in a picture. And this is what John saw, <clears throat> what he understood. He may have not understood it all. <clears throat> he probably didn't have near that you got from it today because he didn't have a New Testament. But he knew that Christ was pictured as the lamb back in the Old Testament. So when he sees him coming, he says, behold, the lamb of God, every aspect of our salvation laid out clearly and completely. The gospel according to Exodus. Reading and studying your Bible through God's eyes and seeing the Passover lamb. And yet, <clears throat> you know, we think because that was 4,500 years ago and they were in bondage in Egypt. We think that <clears throat> people back then because they dressed different and they didn't have buildings like this, they didn't have automobiles, <clears throat> they didn't have a Thanksgiving turkey this week. They didn't have any of the stuff that we got. We actually get in a mindset that we think that they were different from us. They weren't different from us. Human nature is always the same. I don't care if it's 4004 BC or 2010, 2020. Human nature never changes. Clothes change, cultures change, discoveries change, medicine changes. Everything changes, communication changes, human nature never changes. People back then are just like the people today. They are. And, you know, it isn't changed that much. God's people are still God's people. I don't care if it's the Old Testament nation of Israel going out under the blood of a lamb that started a new year for them or, or God's people today that got saved and got a new beginning in life. It's all the same. You know what? When you look at this story, the thing that really overwhelms me that I love about it there were three kind of folks back then that had to deal with this night. Just like there's three kinds of God's people today that have to deal with where we're at today. You realize that some of the nation of Israel back there didn't put the blood on the door? They thought, I'm not going to listen to that preacher. <clears throat> I'm not going to bother putting the blood on the door. <clears throat> well, that stuff... You've been hearing about a deliverer for, we've been down here for 400 years. <clears throat> and now we're going to put blood on the door? You think some animal blood on the door is going to get, how is that going to get me out of Egypt? 
It's like some uh, people today say, are you talking to me? I got to get saved by a dead Jew hanging on a tree to shed his blood that has enough remission to sin. And just like back there, if there were Jews that didn't put the blood on, there's people today that don't put the blood on. In fact, you want to get technical about it, I'll tell you real clear. That night, put the blood on the door, there was 22,000 people, homes, that didn't put the blood on the door. 22,000 firstborn Jewish babies got taken that night because moms and dads didn't believe in putting the blood on the door. Say, so where did you get that number? Oh, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Clearly in the Bible. You've just been dinking around every place else. 22,000 babies, firstborn kids, firstborn teenagers, firstborn adults got killed that night because mom and dad didn't believe in the blood. And they're probably like a lot of God's parents, God's people's parents. They say they believe in the blood, but when it comes to their own house, they really don't. They're good at sharing the lamb with everybody else. Then you had the second guy. (laughs) I can just see this guy. He's pacing up and down, smoking a cigar, you know, pacing up and down in the house, just all looking at his watch, all worried, you know, thinking 12 midnight. Because the Bible says, you know, in verse 29, at midnight, they're going to come over. He's pacing up and down, sucking on his stogie, you know, saying, man, I'll tell you, just, it's driving me crazy, man. I, uh, uh, 12 midnight, man, it's 10 o'clock, two hours. Uh, 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 just pacing up and down and worrying. His wife says, George, what's the matter with you? He said, well, I'm just all nervous and upset about this, all that's going on here tonight, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's just, oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just, oh, all this stuff, you know, and I'm just, oh, I just can't, I'm just so anxious, and I got, I've taken some of my Xanax and all this stuff, I just can't get it under control. And she says, well, George, did you put the blood on the door? Yeah, 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 I did, I did. I put the blood on the door. I would have quit worrying about it. He says, yeah, but what if I didn't put it on right? She says, what? Come on, George. Well, what if I didn't use enough blood? She says, George, really? Come on. He says, well, you know, he, he, he said, put the blood on the door. Did you put it on the door? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I did. But what if he passes over and he can't see it? Maybe I had to go out there and make sure he sees the blood on the door. You see, just like God's people today, some of you, you got the blood on the door and you just can't enjoy it, can you? Always worried about something. Always anxious. Anxiety levels up to the max. Always fretting over things. People never change. He just couldn't rest and relax in what God had told him. And yet he put the blood on the door, but he's worried about did he get it on right? How many times I've talked to some of God's people. Did you really ask the Lord to save you? Yeah, I did. Well, then you're saved. How do you know I didn't ask the wrong way? See? He's worried about, well, maybe I didn't get it on right. Maybe I didn't get enough blood on it. <laughs> oh, boy. Something never change. Then you had the third family who was next door. Dad's sitting down there, you know, reading the family Egyptian magazine. 
Mom's packing the suitcases, you know, and putting the clothes in there. All the kids are running around, you know, and saying, Daddy, Daddy, are are we really going to leave tonight? He put down the magazine and he says, yeah, kids, come on down here. Let me tell you about this. Had a little Bible study with the kids. Get ready, kids, because at midnight, at midnight, the the angel's going to come through and he's going to take us out tomorrow. And the little kid said, Daddy, I, I, I heard that you had the blood on the door or the firstborn. Daddy, I am the firstborn. Did you put the... He says, I got the blood on the door, son. It's okay. And he just sat around there. He just enjoyed the evening. They talked about the Bible, what God had promised. They talked about that lamb and the blood, how that it went back to Job. He offered sacrifices how that Noah, when he come out of the flood, he offered one all the way back to Adam. And Dad told him a little Bible study story about that little lamb. You see, some folks just enjoy and rest in the Lord, and some folks just can't. And some folks just, they care nothing about the blood on the door at all. So when John sees Jesus coming... Now maybe it makes a little better understandable format, a little more sense to it. When John sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Whole new meaning now. Not your little goofy little thing that you put out there to talk about people getting saved. Depth now. It's one thing to be able to quote that verse and talk about Jesus being a Lamb of God. It's quite something else to be able to go down into the Bible and lay something like that out. But that ought to be your goal. When John sees him coming, he knows the Old Testament. He knows everything that happens. And he looks at him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He wasn't just some neat thing he said. It was based on his understanding of that Lamb all the way through the Bible. That's a statement doctrinally is one of the deepest in the Bible to study and to lay out. That most of God's people have no clue today. You see, it brings to mind the importance of learning your Bible. It brings the importance that there's an order of doing things once you get saved. Getting prepared first. This church is about winning people to Christ. It certainly is. Most of you, many of you got saved here through a Bible study or somebody else. And always, first and foremost, you know, we want to do is win somebody to Christ. But before that, even before that, before we even try to open up the scriptures and win somebody to Christ, there's the preparation. The reason why some of you are so successful in dealing with people and winning them to Christ is because you prepared yourself. You can answer any question. You're not limited to just the shallow stuff of the Bible. You have a depth to you. And it's come because of the fact of the things that we've tried to build into your life here from Bible Institute, through the, you know, through the people ministry, through the one-on-one and all of the things and Sunday mornings and Thursday nights of always going back and showing you the depth. And my goal, simply, and, and I know, I, I, I'm not such a fool I'm not under any illusion that everybody under the sound of my voice is going to become a class A Bible student after today or any other time. I know that's not possible. I know that'll probably never happen. 
But I'm, I'm a realist, and I understand that, that if I just get one, if I just get two or three, if I would be so lucky to get 10 or 11, young men and young ladies, they would say, you know what? Do what it did for me back 50 years ago. 1972. You figure it out. Ignite a fire into your heart that you're going to get everything out of the book that you can. That you're never going to be satisfied and you're never going to make excuses. You'll always do whatever you've got to do to make that book everything that God wants it to be in your life. And then, through the preparation, have your feet shod, staff in your hand, preparation, gospel of peace, shoes on your feet. Well, we'll hold up there. 